1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. As you guys are finding your place there, I need you all to be honest with me. How hard is it to share? How hard is it to share? When we think about sharing, the first thing that comes to mind is our children, right? Because we know they don't do well at it. If you have children or grandchildren or neighbor's children or you just watch my children, you realize very quickly they don't share well. How many of you have ever had to teach your children to say the word mine? I don't know about you, but that was like a dirty word in our house. We would never say that word because we didn't want them to learn that word, and somehow they still figured it out. No matter how much we tried to keep them from being corrupted with, with that word, it still, it still came out. We've never had to teach our children to fight over toys or over territory. Um, it just, it's just sharing is hard, and not just for kids. I mean, it's hard for college students. Um, for, before coming here for four and a half years, I taught for Missouri Baptist uh, University, and, and when I taught there, we had a group project every eight weeks. And every eight weeks, there was a dispute between grown adults about, you know, well, he didn't do as much work as I did. And they didn't do their part. And sharing's hard, even for college students. It's even hard for us as adults. How many workplaces are difficult because people don't want to share responsibility. They don't want to share um, the work. They don't want to share the load. I say all of that to say that we in this church are not apart from that either. Sharing is also difficult for us. And the reason this is difficult can be found in in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. It says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. We struggle to share responsibility, to share our things, to share stewardship, to share the workload. We struggle with those things because there are passions in us at war. When anytime, it doesn't matter who you are or where you're at, anytime you put four people in a room together to work towards a common goal, There's four kingdoms at war. There's four kingdoms that each have their own idea and and design and and direction. And when we put a hundred Christians in a church together and ask them to go in one direction, there are a hundred kingdoms at war with one another. That's what makes it so difficult for us. This is what makes it hard for us, but Peter gives us something better in these two packed little verses of verses 9 and 10. Now, I, I, I've tried not to, uh, to slow down and take just two verses at a time. I've tried to allow that to be more for personal, but this is just one of those things, and, 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 and talking with others I, I think is important. As we consider these two verses, we see how Peter is calling us to share our identity, responsibility, and history. 
And I want to admit at the outset that it's difficult. It's difficult to do those things because that means dying to ourself and living for Christ. That means fulfilling the one another commands of preferring one another. So read with me these verses of verses 9 and 10 of 1 Peter chapter 2. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. As we see this, it, it breaks up very, very clearly in three main parts. In the beginning of verse 9, he discusses our shared identity. Who are we? Now, this morning in the deacons' meeting, we, uh, we, I shared with them the principle that a, a much wiser man than myself once told me, you can't over-inform. You can't over-inform. You know why? Because we forget. We're prone to forget. It's, it's really interesting if you do a study throughout Old Testament history of seeing how many times Israel forgot who they were and what they were supposed to do. The church is no different. We are prone to forget our identity. And we're prone to forget that we share an identity with one another. Who are we? It is as if we have some kind of identity amnesia. We know that we're a church, but we're not really sure what that means or who that is. Peter here helps them understand who they are as a group. He helps them by giving them these four identifiers in this passage. He tells them that they are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for his own possession. Now, I'm, I'm going to throw out uh, some English grammar here just because I think it's important. These terms are all what you would call collective singular. In case you're confused about what that means, basically that's this. We can say we have a bunch of chickens or I have a brood. I'm saying the same thing, right? But, but in the one, I'm emphasizing the individual chickens. There's chickens, plural. And the other one, I'm saying it's a whole. Right? I, I can say that I have, uh, I have several cows or I have a herd. It, you know, the, there's these collective terms. Peter is describing them no longer as individuals, but collectively. Their identity is not just the individual. Yes, they are Christians, but the group of Christians is not just individual Christians. They are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Their identity is tied to the group. They're not just seen as individuals. Our identity as believers, as Christians, is tied to who we are gathered together, who it is sitting in this room together. So while we all may scatter and we're going to go to different jobs and different places and different things, we still have this identity holding us together, that we are a chosen race. Now, that's a strange term for us today, right? This idea of chosen race. Chosen is a, a key term for, first Peter, or for Peter. He uses it several times. This is one of those, one of those times. And we see here a, a, a symbol of Israel. Now, how many of you remember where Abram was at when he became the people of God? 
Well, he was just with his family, right? And the city of Ur. Matter of fact, he was probably worshiping idols just like his family was. And yet, God chose him to make a chosen race from him. From you, he would make a nation. Now, that nation, the nation of Israel, they did a lot of goofy stuff, didn't they? They continually, that the law never kept them holy. It continually revealed them, their sin, until finally, after several bad kings, the nation is dispersed. But we have here, in this, in this little passage, we have a reference to the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 43, verses 20 through 21, it says, The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. See, in this passage, we have a quote from Isaiah in which he's saying, you know these people that have been scattered that are all over the wilderness? These people that have been dispersed because of their disobedience? They're still my people. Same is true of you and I. When God looks at us, we are still God's people. Though we are individuals, He has chosen us together. And this choosing together takes us back to 1 Peter 1.23. He says, since you have been born again. Race typically comes from parents, right? I mean, it comes from your biological parents. Who is the Christian's parent? Well, God the Father. That's why he keeps referring to them as children and, and, and referencing them in that way. So we are a chosen race and a royal priesthood. Now, Peter's already referred to this priesthood in verse 5. Remember, uh, that was a couple of weeks ago, so maybe we don't. But if you, if you look back to verse 5, he tells them that they are a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So earlier, he's referring to them as a priesthood so that he could talk about their function of offering sacrifices. Here, he is giving them identity. He's saying they are a royal priesthood, reminding them that their identity is deeply rooted in God's kingdom and not their own. It's deeply rooted in God's place. Now, remember why I told you it's so difficult to share. Because we have, every time we gather a group of four people together, we have four what? We have, we have four, wage, four nations waging war against one another. Notice what he says here. Now you are a royal priesthood. You are a, uh, a priesthood of a kingdom of priests is the passage he's quoting from in Exodus. This idea that we are priests of God's kingdom, not our own. We now serve God. We now have the identity of a royal priesthood. Priesthood is important for Peter because he's saying you don't have to be someone specific to offer praises to God. You know, oftentimes in the church, people look to pastors as um, something like akin to priest of the Catholic Church. And, and I beg of you never to do that. I, I can't tell you how many times I go someplace with my family um, and somebody will cuss and then they'll ask me, well, what do you do for a living? 
and then immediately they're, oh, I'm so sorry that I spoke that way. And, you know, like, like I'm somehow different than if it was just anybody else standing next to them. That I'm somehow um, uh, some special rank of believer. That, that is, Peter is combating that. No, every person in the church is considered a priest of God. They are a royal priesthood. You have just as much responsibility as I do for representing and offering the worship due to God's name. You have just as much responsibility to understand God's word and to apply it to your life as I do. And he's calling them to understand that they are a priesthood for God's kingdom, not their own. And he's quoting almost verbatim for these next three um, descriptors from Exodus 19, 5 through 6. It says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, or people for my own possession. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, or royal priests, and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God has commissioned Moses to tell them they are going to be a particular kind of people. And Peter is saying the particular kind of people that God was looking for never came to fruition in the people of Israel. But look where they are coming to fruition, in the people of God, in God's church. You and I are the descriptors here. Now... So we have this chosen race, this royal priesthood, and a holy nation. Now, most of you, think about this language for, the, for these people. They were in hostile territory. The Romans were um, offended by them. The Romans were afraid they were going to start their own country. And now Peter is applying all of this language. You are a nation. You are a holy nation. Now, Nation is not something we probably wouldn't come in here and say, nation, I'm so glad that you're gathered together today, right? I'm, I'm not going to, we've gathered together as a nation this morning to praise God. We don't, we don't use terms like that. But why is he referring to them in this way? Well, he's trying to remind them of something else. See, a nation means a community of people held together by the same laws, customs, and mutual interest. A nation means the community of people held together by the same laws, customs and mutual interests. We are a community of people, or the Bible often will, or in, in theological terms, will often say we are corporate. We, we have a, a corporate identity. We are a community of people held together by something. What are we held together by? Well, we are, should be held together by our interest in the kingdom of God. We should be held together by the law of Christ and its practice in our Christian lives. We should be held together as we center all that we do around the person and work of Jesus. We are a holy nation or a nation set apart because we are different than everybody else. We have different customs, different laws, different mutual interests. We, we are surrounded, centered around Christ. So we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and we are a people for God's own possession. One commentator says this. He said, God has acted to make them his own possession, something acquired and treasured as one's own and private possession. Think about that for just a moment. 
the creator of the universe. He created all things. The scriptures tell us that he could own the cattle on a thousand hills. He, everything is in his hand. Why does he need any special possession? What, he doesn't need a special possession. But yet, the scriptures declare that these people, God's people, are a special possession. They are a treasured possession. Everybody in this room... If you are a believer in Christ, God purchased you for his own. He sent his son Jesus to die on the cross that you might be his child, that you might be his special treasure. Now, you and I know that the things that we value most, we spend the most on. What more could God have spent to redeem us, his people? What do we think about that? Think about that just for a moment. Think about your identity of who you are. Think about the weight of what it means to be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. When you think about all of those things, how does that compare to what we make church out to be? How does that compare to our own personal preferences? How does that compare to the, the complaints that we might have about the way church is or the way church operates? Think about the weight of what God has given us in this identity in Scripture. If we just think for just a moment about all God has done over thousands of years, as we think back to Exodus and, and, and what God was beginning to accomplish there and how it has come to fulfillment in us, and He's working it out now in us, we're a part of that story. And the cost that Jesus paid for all of these things to be true, and yet we make church so trivial. We make church about so, such meaningless things. Now, I am very grateful that I have never experienced this in any church I've ever been to. But how many of us have heard stories and illustrations of churches who fight over the silliest of things, like carpet or toilet paper. And I have heard that, whether two-ply or one. Which, which one? Is it really worth spending the money? That seems ridiculous, doesn't it? And yet we make church about so many things that are not found in the identity that God has paid so much to give us. Where do you get your identity? Where does this church get its identity? And by church, I mean the people, not the building. Where, where do we, as a whole, get our identity? Where do we think the identity of the church should be? How often do we want church to be about us as opposed to the group? I mean, just, we're all guilty. I'm not preaching at you. I'm, I'm, I'm preaching at us. We're all guilty of wanting church to be about what we think it needs to be in our own individual interest. And yet here we have this corporate identity given to us, a grace that is for all of us, not for any one individual, and it should be carried out in our ministries. And as we examine these titles and this, this identity that God has given us, the next question that should come to our mind is, what do we do with this? What, what are we supposed to do? Okay, so... This is who we're supposed to be. 
Now, what do we do with that? Our identity informs our function. Who we are determines what we're supposed to be doing. If we see our identity as a business, then we're doing things all wrong. Amen? Right? If we see church as a business, if we see church as a social club, we've really messed up. If we see church as any of those things, that if it's a social club, then we should have more social activities. We should do better. We should do away with this and put in a pool. We should put in a fitness center, and, and then, then we could really have people come. If that's our identity, if our identity is, is to be entertainment, then you guys, I'm the, I am not the entertainment you're seeking. That we could have some rock concerts up here or something that would get more people in here. But that's not our identity. Our identity informs our, our function, what we're supposed to be doing. And if this is who we are, a holy nation set apart for God, then what are we supposed to be doing? Peter reminds us of just that. He says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So if this is who we are, what are we supposed to be doing? Declaring the excellencies of God. If this is who we are, then you and I, our role, our function, the direction we should be going is proclamation of God. Proclaiming His greatness, not our own. Proclaiming His goodness, His excellencies. And another term for excellencies there could be His character. As you look through Scripture and you see Him described as beautiful and and gracious and merciful and just and holy as we proclaim those things, this is our function. Now, when you hear the word proclaim, a, a multitude of things could come to your mind. And, and um, I'm not, I don't claim to be a scholar by any stretch of the measure, but commentators are divided over this little word. Some say um, it's, he means worship. Our identity is to worship. Others say our identity is to evangelize, or our function is to evangelize. Proclamation means evangelize. I say, why do they have to be separate? Our identity as as a church is to proclaim how great God is to each other and to those outside the church. Proclaim it to each other and outside. It doesn't have to be either or. We can both lift God up and worship in here, and we should lift God up and worship out there. This is our identity, if this is, or this is our function, our responsibility. If our identity is found in, in this group, then this is what we should be doing, is proclaiming God's excellencies. This, this is not just left for, and I keep hammering this home, and it's not because I don't want to, it's just because I want you to join me. This is not left for me to do on Sunday mornings. Proclaiming God's excellencies is what we do all week long. And then we gather together, not necessarily to refuel, but to lift God up together that he might be glorified by the group. But we've been doing it all, long, all week long. We've been practicing for this moment. All week long, we've been singing God's praises to those around us. All week long, we've been proclaiming his greatness to those that we share life with. That is our function. That means that If we're not doing this, if there are things getting in the way of us proclaiming God's excellencies, we should probably remove them. I won't say we should probably. We should remove them. It it would be better to cut out your own eye 
than to go to hell with both. It would be better to cut off your own limb, Jesus says, than to go to hell with both. It would be better to have a church that doesn't cater to everyone's whim and yet have a church that is sanctified by God, that is holy, that is proclaiming His excellencies regardless of the cost. He says that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him. That word you, let me retranslate that for you. This is probably more familiar. That y'all. That, that's the actual word there. That y'all. It's not you singular, it's, it's the, the plural. That you all indicates that the witness is to be given by everyone here. Everyone here is to be giving this witness. And what is it that we are to be proclaiming? We're to be proclaiming him who called us out of darkness into this marvelous light. Now, what is that? Think for just a moment. From darkness into marvelous light, what does that remind you of? I pray that that reminds you of creation. I pray that that reminds you of a time when there was no light, and God said, let there be light. And for each and every one of us, there was a moment in which we walked in darkness. And yet God, in his greatness, said, let there be light shown in his heart. Let there be light shown in their heart, and we became a new creation. Here he is reminding us that we are to proclaim the excellencies of him who saved us. Each and every one of you have a testimony. Each and every one of you have a, a testimony, and I pray that it is a Christian testimony, one in which you were not a believer and, and you came to know Christ and your life was transformed by that. That's something that you all have and you can all share. He's calling us to just that. Our identity informs our function. So what do we see as the church's primary function? What do we see it? Does it align with God's design? Or should we go buy some bounce houses? Does it align with God's design? Or should we go find a rock star to come up here? Does it, is this what we're doing? Our function needs to come out of, out of our identity. And our function should be to proclaim God's excellencies. So as we consider this, we understand that we have a shared identity and we have a shared function. We have a shared responsibility. But how did we get here? Because we have a shared history. Now, I've asked, I try to ask as many people as I can that I come across who they are and about their story, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know what? I am who I am because of things that I've experienced. I, I, you know, I... If I had never experienced Jesus Christ, I wouldn't be a believer. But because I have experienced the transforming work of his, his word, I am a believer in God's grace and his salvation and those things. We, we are impacted by our history. But you know what? We all have a shared history. And that sounds strange, doesn't it? Because everyone in here comes from a different background. You've done different things all your life. You've had different experiences and we could go through each and every one of those individuals, but Peter is calling us not to our individual history, but to our shared history. How do we get here? Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
These are descriptors of all of our histories. All of our histories begin the same way if we are a believer in Jesus. Once I wasn't a person of God, now I'm one of God's children. Once I had not received God's mercy, now I have received God's mercy. It all begins the same way. We all start on level ground when it comes to Jesus. No one is higher, no one has done better. Now, Peter here is referring, this is a direct quote from Hosea 2.23, and Hosea is a very interesting book. I won't read it, but I will read this passage. It says, And I will sow her, that is the people of God, I will sow her for myself in the land. It's this planting metaphor. And I will have mercy on no mercy. That's kind of strange, isn't it? I will mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Now, what he's doing here is he's saying, if you look in your Bibles at those passages, if they translate them correctly, they've got them in like big, bold letters. And, and what they're saying here is these are titles. This is their identity. They once were a people who were identified as no people. Nobodies. That's their identity. But now they are God's people. Apart from Jesus, each and every one of us in this room is a nobody. We deserve nothing. But in Jesus, we have received mercy. At one time, you couldn't, at one time, none of us in this room could be considered a group. I've, I've said this before, I'll say it again. The idea of church is crazy. Just think about that for just a moment. The idea of church is crazy. If we went around this room and I just asked each of you to tell me a little bit about yourselves, none of them would match. We all, we're all different. And yet somehow God has chosen to bring us together around his son. He, we were not a people. We were not a group. But now we can be identified as one person, the people of God. We, we were one time had not received any mercy. But now our identity as is those who have received mercy. That means that when we look outside the church and we see people outside the church, that should, our identity should inform theirs. We understand that there's something different about us, right? What is it that we understand? We understand that before Christ, we had nothing. But with Christ, we are a people of God. So when I look outside this church, I should see these people as lonely, as lost, as struggling, and you know what? I should want them to be a part of the people of God. I should look out this room, in this room, and say, you know what? Once I was a person who had knew nothing of God's mercy. That's how they are outside, our, outside of this building. They know nothing of God's mercy. So you know what? I'm going to go to them and tell them about the mercy of God offered to them. I'm going to go, I want them to be informed by these things. You have often heard it said that a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, that picture is that of the church. And the church, when people look at us, should be saying something. It should be speaking clearly to those outside the church. They should see individuals who are entirely different working together towards the common interest of Jesus Christ. 
They should be questioning about the grace that is in here, not the arguing that is in here. They should be looking inside and saying, those people are so unified in Christ that, that they are going in the same direction, and I want to be a part of that. What's your history? As you consider these things, are you inside those people? Have you been led to this? So as we think through all of these things, we think through our, our shared identity, our shared responsibility, our shared history, you say, well, why are we sharing? Why are we sharing these things? What difference does it make that we have these shared things? Let me try to illustrate it this way. If we had two churches, okay, bear with me here on the names, I'm not very creative. We have two churches. One church could be called Unity Baptist. They're a small group of 100 individuals which have covenanted together to work towards one goal. They don't have a lot of resources or a lot of people, and as a matter of fact, they've encountered a lot of opposition. But they have decided to use the resources they have to work towards one goal. Part of the church excels at preparation. Part of the church excels at reaching out. Part of them ex excel at uh, hosting. Part of them excel at... Um, at sharing the gospel, each one have, has its own gift, but they're all working towards one goal. There's a second church called Independent Baptist. I'm not referring to the domination. And this Independent Baptist prides themselves on the variety of ministries they offer and programs and helps. The leaders encourage every individual to pursue their own ministry that they can do. They have 250 people and doubled the budget of Unity Baptist. In their zeal, they have established 20 different ministries, and they seek to serve a variety of people. And because of that, they have established the motto of divide and conquer. Now, when you compare those two churches, the second one sounds pretty impressive, doesn't it? 20 ministries, double the budget, double the people. Divide and conquer. We're going to take this over. But just think for just a moment. You have 250 people going in 20 directions. That means, you know, if you just do a little math here with me. If they're going in 20 different directions, that means you've got 10 to 15 people in each group, right? How fast are 10 to 15 people going to wear out in each ministry? Now, think about that as opposed to the 100 people. All going and one direction, all working together towards one goal, how much stronger is their presence going to be? How much stronger is, is, is their desire going to be? How much stronger is their impact going to be? Now, that may, I, I hope that makes sense to you, but what I'm saying to you is we should all be unified in the sense that we are all seeking to proclaim God's graces. But you know what it takes to be unified? It takes preferring one another. It means that you may have a better grasp of what it means to do this thing than I do. So, you know what? I don't understand it, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to follow you. And together, there's two now that are strengthened. And you know what? They bring along a third, and they say, you know what? I think maybe we should try it this way. And the two of them say, you know what? Let's try it. Let's, let's, let's work together. Now you have three moving in the same direction. 
And before long, you can have a group of individuals pressing forward for the kingdom of God and penetrating the darkness, penetrating the hardness that was once there. Our church should be centered on proclaiming God's greatness. And though we may differ on what that looks like, we should come together and seek to be unified and making a difference for Christ. Pray with me.